Game Cool Books, Episode 60, Too Strong a Weapon. In Chapters 8 and 9, we pick up with Will's timeline. Vodka, the title of Chapter 8, is like a play on the very first chapter in this whole series, The Decanter of Tokai. Where that was refined, this is blunt. Where that was playful, this is stark. The epigraph, A Stranger in a Strange Land, comes from the story of Moses naming his firstborn in the book of Exodus. Though among many readers it might be better known as the title of the sci-fi story. The relative time of what is going on here gets pinpointed for us right at the death of Baruch. Baltimus can feel it despite the distance between them. If their link is in some way akin to that between human and demon, the effect here is not to kill the remaining angel, though only to cripple Baltimus with grief. He goes seeking signs of his companion in the clouds, dramatically cursing the stars. Will's attitude towards this show of mourning seems to reflect the reader's own likely response, guided by the tonally difficult-to-pin-down narration. From concern, we soon enough see him commanding quiet. Will mingles the practical need for silence with the more sentimental one, as he needs Bartamos to be brave like Baruch now for Will. He relies on him to play his demon. And so, in a way... Will is the closest thing Balthamos has now to Baruch, too. He had to trust the angel, though we never get much indication of Will's religious beliefs. Lines like this one suggest he is a skeptic. Balthamos concludes the scene, declaring his resolve to guide Will to Lyra, then to deliver them to Lord Asriel as planned. He emphasizes his great age effectively immortal, unless he should be killed. But mainly he does so to single out the specialness of his relationship to Baruch, the effect he had on him, making him ardent to do good, even going so far as to speak in religiously inflected language, that whenever he failed, Baruch's goodness was there to redeem Balthamos. So though his own nature is plainly more complicated, he will try to serve Will faithfully, as his departed companion did. Going to scout ahead, Balthamos does not tell Will what he knows about Metatron. Not about his relation to Baruch as his brother, nor that he has Will in his sights, physically and spiritually those parts Will doesn't know about himself, including that aspect of his nature Lyra would have called his demon. Not now and not ever, apparently, does Balthamus tell him all this. But if this was originally planned to have some consequence, the confrontation between Will and Metatron never develops in the story as we have it. Balthamus's shortcomings will take another form instead. In contrast to the drab landscape and slow progress Will can make walking, the angel brings news of a wide river with a port town, where Will could get a passage on a ship moving much more quickly south. 
the direction he and the story for a change want to go. To his concern about the language, Balthamos implies that he will not attract attention by interpreting. Indeed, we saw Mrs. Coulter Demon do just as much with Amas. Before coming to the town, as Will passes through a shabby village, noting the recent flood damage, the very ground dragging his feet, this most solid of characters almost loses his balance before realizing that it's the scenery leaning ever so slightly and that causes him to stumble. A suggestive image for the effect of a sick society or institution, for the dome of the church, too, is cracked, the effect that has on even the strongest of individuals. Balthamus, snarling as a dog to keep the ordinary dogs away, as a sparrow whispers to Will to keep his head down, respectfully passing by the first people that they've seen in Lyra's world, an unfriendly couple of men. Appearing respectful and inconspicuous is Will's greatest talent. Nevertheless, he does not evade the attention of the village priest. Immense with a crow demon, his restless eyes, Metatron-like, take in Will's face and body, and, as we'll see, the priest takes an interest in his soul, too, after a fashion. The only interpreting Valtamos needs to do here is to his first question about where Will is from, for when Will replies in English, the priest obligingly carries on the conversation in that language, of which he has a fair mastery. He calls the village the no longer perpendicular Kholodnoya, a word that apparently means cold in Russian. Accepting Will's story of having lost his family, the priest pulls him in his house for refreshment. Mouse-formed, as if shy of the man's demon, Balthamos takes cover, rather than revealing himself to the interested priest. Yet another indication that something creepy is going on. In the parlor, there's a samovar, standby of Russian novels. Stroking his arm, the priest introduces himself to Will as Otyets Semyon Borisovich, explaining the title and the patronymic, and bestowing, or perhaps imposing, a like name on his guest, calling him Will Ivanovich. We might note the tension between the two meanings of father here, the priestly title and the family relation, as Will spins a tale of his father, who is lost, to put off this priest who is all too present. His hospitality is vaguely menacing. A welcome visitor, Will must stay the night, and they will talk and eat together. The servant, Lydia Alexandrovna, brings tea, but in exchange, Will has to undergo the touch of the priest who feels his hands and strokes his knees. Attempting to distract him only sets him off about the Apocalypse, book of Revelation in the Bible, where apparently rivers flow backwards. The authority of God, the Almighty Father, yet another absent Father, created the world, but now it's turned upside down. For a week, again, that period of time comes up, there was thick fog, and the river flowed backward. With another atlas, 
priest's dirty fingernail pinpoints the place they are in central Siberia. The Himalaya at this scale don't look anything like Baruch's sketch. After a long grace and a meal, the options are to play at cards or talk, while all Will and the reader want to do is to move on. When he hears about a shipful of armored bears, Will's expression must betray too much eagerness, since the priest grows suspicious. All things from the north are devilish, he declares. He especially hates witches. Seeming to project onto them his own desires, the priest insists they would seduce a young man like Will and take his seed, drain him and leave him hollow, take his future children. The church should have put them all to death, he repeats. On that note, he brings down the drink, connecting knowing the taste of vodka to knowing these facts of life. He jokes that in collaborating on the homebrew vodka, that is the only place he and his servant lie together. The revolting taste of their product, a fitting image for his disgust of sexuality. Standing to go, taking his leave as politely but firmly as possible, Will nevertheless must drink the vodka already poured for him. The pervert priest instructs him, shows him the way. His closeness, the sickening smells, the threatening hardiness, finally the fiery, oily gulp of vodka, make this ordeal nearly as harrowing as anything Will has been through. My boy, the priest calls him, reciting a psalm or prayer over him, his beard brushing Will's face, hugging, kissing him on both cheeks, here, Balthamus presses claws in Will's shoulder to remain still. The priest finally pushes him away. Once again, but for a different reason than the environmental ones, the off-kilter village is difficult for him to walk straight through. The coolness of the angel's hands, or some virtue at his touch, helps Will to shake off the nausea of the priest's house. But he vows never to drink vodka again. Very different from Lyra's playful drinking in the catacombs, or from the medicinal brandy in the Tower of the Angels. Finally, this story picks back up with a straightforward obstacle for our hero to face, in the smoke and boom of a gun coming from the port town. The high mud stains on the walls place us near the river. The shouts of the people watching, curious despite the danger, promise a spectacle. The town's gun fires but misses with a splash, while aboard the ship, beings of metal launch a flower of flame, which comes down catching fires all around their gun. Rather than relying on Baltimus, Will asks a man who looks like a teacher, who does happen to know English, what the fighting is all about. As the priest had said, it's because the people won't sell the bear's fuel, though it's unclear who fired first. Even as they flee their posts, the townspeople hiss at the sailors helping the bears, cowards calling them traitors, and one even fires on them. The first time Will sees a demon vanish with its human's death. Like a candle flame, the seagull is extinguished, 
while the bears still have the power to burn the entire town down if they choose. Clearly the fighting is pointless, but the people are stubborn, forcing the bears to be the pirates they've convinced themselves they are, the town martyring itself to its own proud impotence. Before they can fire the big gun one last time, sealing their fate even if they take a bear or two down with them, Will runs into the empty space between the two sides. The idea that has struck him from the blue, perhaps from Lyra's story of stopping Yorick's rampage in Trollicent, is to let him speak to the bear. English, conveniently enough, facilitates their exchange. To the people's bewilderment and to the scorn of the bear, Will challenges him to single combat. Mocking laughter, silenced by his seriousness, gives way to the town's agreeing to sell the bear's fuel if they stop attacking. First, he has to convince the lead bear it wouldn't be shameful to fight him, that he's not as weak as an oyster out of its shell. Focusing his attention now on the bear, Will demands one piece of armor to make them even. The power of his attention and his words here call out a similar, close attention on the part of the people. As before during the skirmish, they realize now that despite the stillness, something just as dramatic is happening. The clang of the helmet, as so heavy Will can barely lift it, gives way to the clatter of its shredded remains. Will's knife makes him the bear's equal in deadliness. He uses the same words about one sweep of his blade that he'd used about the bear's claws, and his superior in that he needs no armor. Whether Will would actually win such a fight or not, he clearly outfaces his opponent here. As the bear hesitates and then gives in. At once, Will addresses his other adversary, the townspeople, stilling them with the same power of his focused attention. As sandbags break up the flow of a river, it's a fitting image for this setting, and the bear's voice is compared to a ship's engine a little further on. It's also like Lyra reading the alethiometer, as Will seems to be acting on his intuition here, whereas the bear understands more than he does what Will has achieved. A glance between the two hints at their shared, if differing, levels of understanding. People crowding to him, Will's power of deflecting attention now comes into play. It's not magic, the narrator says. It just makes him appear so much less interesting that the people are soon bored and forget about him. But the bear is not human. This is just what Yorick had said when he showed Lyra the fencing demonstration. And so he recognizes this deflection of attention as yet another extraordinary power at Will's command. Just like that, their conflict is resolved. He can make another helmet, he says. And they'll bring Will along as they're going south to the mountains. In exchange, he wants a chance to see the knife at this point, Will reveals that he has known all along his opponent must have been that bear 
that Lyra told him he could trust, the king and friend of his friend. In this way, he has truly had the advantage of Yorick all along. Through Lyra's eyes, the reader has been prepared for their meeting from the beginning, as she continually has likened Will to her friend the Bear King. Now, when they meet at last, they are well matched, form an alliance where before fighting had seemed inevitable. The dust motif recurs once more here in the coal-black dust as the requisite fuel is loaded on the ship. No dream concludes this chapter, nor any of those to come, and the action flows uninterrupted into the next chapter 9, Upriver. The epigraph this time comes from an Emily Dickinson poem. A shade upon the mind there passes, as when on noon a cloud the mighty sun encloses. This seems to refer to Yorick's doubts about the knife. The second stanza, not quoted, goes on. From the end of the first that goes, Remembering that some there be too numb to notice. O God, why give if thou must take away the loved? This seems to foreshadow both what has happened to Lyra and what will happen. Her kidnapping, her imminent rescue from the reformed Mrs. Coulter, and the final parting between Will and Lyra at the end of the book. Only by looking at the full poem does that range of interpretations come into view, however. Pullman quotes selectively here, as we saw with his snippets of Milton. Nothing made of iron is a mystery to a bear, Yorick says, but the knife has captivated his curiosity. The scene is aboard ship, Will and the bear taking their second measure of each other, not in the context of combat this time, but an examination of the decisive factor in that unfought bottle. battle, the subtle knife. Just as Will did not fully understand what he'd accomplished at the town, despite using powers that are second nature to him, Yorick perceives that he does not fully understand the power of the knife either. Delicately, skillfully, the bear handles it, testing its one razor-sharp edge, and questioning its other strange one. Will tells most of his story, but refrains from the full truth about his mother, the man he killed, and his meeting with his father. The price for winning possession of the knife, the wound to his hand, prompts Yorick to recognize the smell of blood moss. But as with the knife, he knows there's something else there that he doesn't comprehend. All Will says about this is that he received the precious ointment from a man who then died, and that the witches had tried and failed to heal him. Not only then does he have a weapon that none can withstand, he has a medicine that heals any wound. The former the man told him to use for Azrael's cause, but the latter might well be even more valuable, and is all Will's own. He has chosen to defy, or at least to defer, that healer's instructions, though, until rescuing Lyra. 
Setting aside the mysteries of the subtle knife and the blood moss ointment for the moment, Yorick recounts his side of what has brought them together, how the catastrophe of the melting ice and its consequences on sea currents and their prey led to the bear's rational response, migrating to the mountains, still stocked with snow and ice, to take refuge there as long as it would take for the north to refreeze. Their old enemies vanished with the seals. We aren't told who those enemies are, but if the cliff ghasts are among them, it seems they've gone to haunt the worlds where the coming war is to be fought. Like Lee talking to Serafina in the balloon, Will's question is about which side they're on in this war. Whichever would give advantage to the bears, Yorick says, though he concedes that he has some regard for Lee and Serafina and Lyra, and he would take into consideration helping or avenging them, too. He seems to harbor no resentment towards Azriel or the church, though they are responsible directly and indirectly, respectively, for the catastrophe which melted the ice. As for Mrs. Coulter, Yorick calls her the abominable woman, though, as we'll see, when they arrive at her hiding place, Yorick is quite content to play a merely supporting role in the conflict against her. His function in the story is strictly supporting. Having hired the boat, the river carrying them to where Will was and on towards Lyra, we're told things have fallen out well. The narrator remarking this with considerable understatement, that idiom or cliche about things falling out well suggests a lucky chance, but as we've seen with the Yarrow stocks and the I Ching, it also conceals an image of favorable omens and occult powers conspiring towards some auspicious end. This boat journey may recall Lyra's with the Egyptians, but Will is not like Lyra, able to make conversation with everyone out of his lively curiosity into everything. The sailors don't like the bears, and they sense something odd about this foreigner, superstitious of his strange demon, which is so like a witch's. And so they're left alone. Balthamos relapses into quiet grief, flying off to reminisce about Baruch, still keeping his knowledge of Metatron and other deep angelic matters to himself. Balthamos shuts himself off from Will's resources of sympathy. He's curt, yet keeps his promise to drop the sarcasm. Yorick keeps obsessing over the knife, questioning it with all his senses, even listening to the sound the air makes flowing over it. Letting anyone else hold the knife is skirting the rules laid down by Mr. Paradisi, but Will has no fear. And for whatever reason, he allows Yorick to investigate while not telling him what that other edge can do. But he does promise that once they disembark from the moving boat, he'll show him. York says something interesting here, that he can think what it might be, but not understand what he is thinking, and gives Will an unreadable stare. So at least one of the powers of the knife is to unsettle the otherwise imperturbable nature of the bear's intelligence. In this way, it is like the opening of Azriel's, forcing the bears to leave their native land. Metaphorically, 
This all relates to the unforeseen impact of human activity on the environment. But as we'll see, the openings made by the knife have a crucial spiritual or spectral dimension as well as the physical consequences. As the ship struggles to navigate the flooded reaches of the river, the bears keep cool, swimming and tasting their native waters in this foreign land. Mountains appear white on the horizon and inconceivably high, something else that we can see but not quite understand. The bears want to know what they will hunt there. Are there seals in the mountains? Yorick assures them there will be wild creatures in plenty. The important thing is to survive, so that they can go back when this revolution is complete. Having done nothing, they would have starved, but now they must be prepared for new ways. Where the river becomes too shallow, in the valley with a rock for a jetty, they leave the ship to make their way on foot. The captain gives Will a map and shows him where they are. A gift as far as possible from the priest's oppressive hospitality. The man bustles off immediately after. And with an echoing blast of its horn, the ship departs. The bears are similarly quick to disperse, eager to go exploring on their own, with only the prohibition from making war and the reminder to reassemble here on this spot when it's time to return to the north. To find Lyra, Will and Yorick head south and east through a pass called Song Chen, but in the American edition of the book, it says that this comes from information from the shaman. Clearly, that should be Angel, and it's corrected in the audio version. Again, Will relishes the freedom after the cramped ship, while Yorick knows that the boy had been at the last of his strength when they met and needed the rest. With the knife, he shows Yorick a world with a tropical rainforest, a sort of exaggeration of the heat and climate change the bears have experienced. Once Yorick has gone through and come back, the window safely closed, he nevertheless peers gravely at the knife, reflecting that he was right. He could not have fought this. Not Will armed with it, but the knife itself, and particularly that edge of it which opens the other worlds. This is the first hint of his misgivings, which we'll hear more about when the knife is broken and he is the only one who can reforge it. Gazelle meat, courtesy of Yorick, sustains them. At a village, Will gets some better boots and a warm waistcoat, as well as directions to the valley with the rainbows. Balthamus, a crow, interpreting. It's only three days' walk. The narration zooms out, then, to track the others. Azriel's force at the breach in the sky, a gunway in command, via lodestone communicating with the adamant tower. The church, unified around the mission to kill Lyra, the society's skillful alethiometrist, giving them her precise location, and the news that Azriel's forces are racing them there. But not, evidently, that the Galavespian spies are aboard the President's Zeppelin. Thus, even if the church arrives first, they can go to the cave and protect Lyra. Their secret weapon, 
dragonfly larvae. Each clan's bred for different specialties, from aggressive power and speed to luminescence. Playing on the motif of maturity, they can keep the dragonflies suspended or bring them to adulthood rapidly, depending on the diet they feed them. It's a 36-hour flight, we're told, so they must be departing about a day and a half into Will and Yorick's remaining walk as they'll arrive about simultaneously. On that, a different sort of cliffhanger than the dream, for we're told about what is not spoken of, the assassin, Father Gomez, whom no one but the narrator and the reader are now able to track. Thanks for listening.